The title that I have given to this message this morning is Why People Are the Worst. Uh, Now, uh, admittedly, this is a contemporary expression. Uh, John Calvin, nor Charles Spurgeon, nor Billy Graham would ever say anything like that. They would probably be inclined to say, people are the worst what? But it's just people are the worst. Uh, I have heard that this is how the cool kids talk. People are the worst. Now, even if you're not one of the cool kids, you understand the idea. Sometimes people can be so frustrating. Why are some of the people that you know, let alone the monsters that make the news, why are they so horrible? Some people are hard to love all the time. All people are hard to love some of the time. I remember what I read several years ago about a group of porcupines that were living together in the middle of the forest during the deepest, darkest period of winter. You know, one of those nights when you go outside and your lungs hurt to breathe. Well, these porcupines were there, they were together, and they huddled together for warmth, but their quills kept getting in the way. It was too cold to be alone, but it was too painful to be close. The analysis of this story is, of course, that the porcupines needed each other, but they kept needling each other. Is that how your relationships work? Um, Who in your life do you need and needle at the same time? Don't point at them. That's not what I asked you to do. All right, some of you are already elbowing. Okay, don't do that. This morning what I want to do is I want to talk to you about why people are the worst. And I want to do it by summarizing with you what the Bible says about being a human and how God's original design for humanity has been corrupted by sin. Both of these are significant topics. They're, they're big topics. We could devote hours to them, but we're going to just focus on the essentials. And actually, that focusing work has already been done for us, and the fruit of it is in our doctrinal statement. Our church's doctrinal statement is a summary of what we believe. It forms the, the cognitive commitments, the, the, the beliefs, the, the content of our faith, the boundaries around which we are formed as a church. It doesn't have everything that's true about our church. It doesn't have everything in it that we hold dear as a church. But it's one of the ways that we measure whether or not we can fruitfully worship with one another and disciple one another and and cooperate together as a local community of believers in the mission that God has given his church. So there are other churches near us that we love dearly that are share our common commitment to Jesus, but they don't share all of these particularities with us. They, they share a lot, but not everything. And, and this summary of our doctrinal statement is the written summary that binds us together. Christ calls us together by his word, and, and these statement, this statement kind of boundaries us together as we pool our resources together and as we cooperate with one another in this particular branch of the family of Christ. So we've been talking uh, through, walking through this section, this doctrinal statement, section by section. It's not our normal practice. Usually we're in the Bible together. We move through books of the Bible. Next week, uh, Jiten Singh will be with us. So in the spare time that I have this week, I plan to devote as much time of it as I can to studying 1 John, because that's where we're going to go next in September, because uh, that's our normal practice, walking through books of the Bible. But 
we're working through this summer our doctrinal statement, and we come to this section about humanity and sin. So let's read it together. We've been doing that. And then I want to give you two reasons why people are just the worst. All right, let's read this together. It's italicized on that blue sheet of paper in your bulletin. Shall we read? We believe that all humans have been made in the image of God. As beings created by God, humans exist to glorify Him, and were intended to enjoy a relationship with Him forever. Humanity was given responsibility over creation. Sin entered the world through Adam's disobedience to the Word of God. All people are sinners by nature and choice, having inherited guilt from their parents. Every member of the human race is born estranged from God and in need of a Savior. Here are two reasons why people are the worst. Number one, they disappoint us because of their ruined potential. They disappoint us because of their ruined potential. People are the worst because they disappoint us. We expect more and they never live up to our expectations. People are a surprising gift of a surprising mix of goodness and beauty and terror. Isn't, isn't that true? Human beings can perform great acts of sacrifice. They can write beautiful music. They can design amazing buildings. They can demonstrate amazing athletic prowess. They can uh, provide wonderful acts of compassion. They can bring comfort and human humor and joy. And they also can be ferocious and mean and terrible. If you only consider half of the story, the good, the beautiful, and the true half, you're bound to be disappointed. So, but that's what we're going to focus on for just a minute. We're going to talk about God's original design for human beings, what human beings are. Why is there any good in humanity? Why do we see beautiful and good and true things in human beings? Here's why human beings have been made in the image of God. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to spend some time in this passage this morning. Genesis 1 is so easy to find. It's right after the table of contents. It should be on, like, page 1 of your Bible. So uh, if you want to turn there with me. Genesis 1, of course, is the story of how God called the world into existence. We're not going to read it this morning, the whole thing. But I want to remind you of the structure of this chapter. It's going to become important later. This is, again, the story of God calling the world into existence. And it's told, it's very interesting, it's told with a particular rhythm. There's pattern, there's repetition in this, in this particular rhythm, right? Day one, evening, morning, day two, evening, morning, And God embeds this rhythm in creation that he creates. We call this, of course, time, this rhythm that God puts in. And then there's these repeated patterns in the book of Genesis. Well, what in our culture is it that has rhythm and repeated patterns? Music, right? So God sings the world into existence. Let there be light. And there was light, and it was good. I'm not sure if that was the way it was, (laughs) right? It was symphonic, right? Let there be light, and there was light, and it was good, right? Okay, maybe that, okay? 
But, but God is, is singing the world. You love it when I sing to you. I know that. I know that. Right? God's singing the world into existence. Maybe one of the reasons that human beings sing is because we were made by a singing God. And the pinnacle of his creation, the final movement, the climax of this song is in verses 26, 27, and 28. So look at it with me here. We're going to read these verses. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And here's a poem within the poem. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here's that crucial word, image. And it's synonym, it's pair, uh, likeness. Image and likeness, they basically mean the same thing. And for thousands of years, Christian theologians have tried to figure out what is it that the Bible is talking about when it says that we are made in God's image. And three ideas have, promin- have uh, predominated that discussion. On the one hand, some uh, the people say that when the Bible talks about being made in God's image, it means that we have certain capacities as human beings. Certain capacities that mark us out as unique among God's creatures. Usually those capacities are summarized as mind, will, and emotions. We have the ability to think rationally, uh, to feel emotions, and to make decisions. We have a will. Some people have argued, though, that it's not capacity that describes the image of God. But secondly, some people have said that the image of God is about relationship. It means that because we're made in God's image, we have the capacity to have a relationship with God. Your dog cannot have a relationship with God, but you as a human being can have a relationship with God. Have you ever seen those videos? They were popular on Facebook for a while. People who train their dogs to say grace. It's terrible. So they call their dog out. They put the food in front of it, and they, they get their dog to put their paws together like this and put their head on their paws, and then the person prays, Uh, for the dog, giving thanks for the food. That's terrible. Okay, your dog has no capacity to have a relationship with God. Yesterday, I was in the Hallmark store. uh, Thursday, I was in the Hallmark store. And you can now buy birthday cards for your dog. You can buy a birthday card to give to your dog for your dog's birthday. If you do that, you are a terrible theologian and a dippy human being, okay? (laughs) All right? Your dog does not have the capacity. I love you, but you're dippy. You, you do not have the capacity. Your dog doesn't have the capacity to have a relationship with God or read a birthday card. All right? Now, finally, third. here's a third idea about the image of God, being made in the image of God. And um, the third idea is that people say that dominion is central to the image of God or rule. I think that the first two suggestions have something going for them, but the third one, this idea of dominion, the image of God means rule or dominion, it has the closest ties in the text. Did you notice how in Genesis 1, 26 or 28, it talks about dominion and rule? He says, um, verse 26, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. Why? So that they may rule. It's that dominion idea is embedded in the text. Or verse 28 It says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. 
So God placed man and woman in the garden that he planted so that they might rule in his stead. He's the creator God. He called the world into existence. He has the right to rule over it with absolute sovereignty. And inside the world that he made, he placed his own image, his own representative who was to rule in his place on the planet. Um, Several years ago, we attended a wedding. Kathy's cousin got married in Ontario, Canada. And it was in an Anglican church in Ontario. And at the back of the church, there was a Canadian flag and a picture of Queen Elizabeth. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, by her right and title, is the head of the Anglican church. She is the leading sovereign over the Anglican communion worldwide. And her image was there in the back of the church as a symbol and as a sign of her authority. God made a universe, and in it he put his own image to rule in his stead. As you read Genesis 1 and 2, you you see that Adam, at first alone in the garden, is, is involved in a sort of apprenticeship with God. Now follow me here for just a minute. The work of creation, as it's described in these six days in Genesis 1, God basically does two things. He forms, he calls the universe into existence, then he forms it, and he fills it. In the first three days, he forms it. He forms the land and the seas. He forms the sky. He forms day and night. And, and in the process of forming, he names. He names day. He names night. He names land. He names sea. He names sky. He names. The first three days, he forms. In the second three days, though, he fills the world that he has made. He puts birds in the sky. He puts fish in the sea. He puts animals on the earth. But you know what's what's interesting? In the second three days of creation, God doesn't name. He names in the first three days, but he doesn't name what he has made in the second three days. That's actually a responsibility that he gives to Adam in the garden on day six. He says to him, you're supposed to name the creature. God started the naming. Adam uh, is going to finish the work. He's God's apprentice there in the garden. Adam is also involved in the same evaluative work that God is involved in. So all along in Genesis chapter 1, God is evaluating what he's made. He's saying, oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. Adam comes to the point when he is naming the animals in which he discovers something that is not good. It's actually something that God has already observed, but Adam does it too. He's, he's, he's God's apprentice. Adam learns that there's no suitable partner for him, and that's not good. How, how is Adam going to fill the earth by himself? He can, so God makes uh, Eve. He makes woman. In the image of God, man and woman are here supposed to imitate God in forming and filling the world. In Genesis 3, when the serpent comes to Eve and says... You can be like God. You can be like God if you want. Eve should have looked at him and said a number of things. But she should have said to him, What do you mean we can be like God? We already are like God in this forming and filling work. Human beings have a beautiful and wonderful capacity to form and fill the earth. 
We cultivate land, uh, we train animals, we build machines, we write music and poetry and we create dances and we weave fabric and we build bridges and castles and planes. We write books, we bake cookies, we invent drugs, we laugh, we sing, we hug. All of that is, is image bearers and it's, it's wonderful. I want you to consider for a minute all of the potential that human beings made in God's image have by virtue of his creative work and we see God's power we see God's grace all the time in wonderful things that human beings do at the same time we see ruined potential I want you to think for me for a minute about a graduation ceremony every graduation ceremony whether it's preschool middle school high school college and so on every graduation ceremony is a celebration in some way of potential isn't it uh, sure, it's a celebration of accomplishment. Look at all you've done. You've, you've got educated, so that's wonderful. And, but it's also a, a, a push towards what's next. The principal or the president will stand up in front of the graduates and, and he will say, she will say, I now declare, I pronounce you educated. And you are all educated. And then the implicit message is, now go do something with this education. Or you gotta, you got to go do something. And, and many of the graduates, they will. They'll, they'll go pursue more education. They'll, they'll get married and raise children. They'll use their education to do that. They'll start businesses. Uh, all kinds of things that will happen after graduation. But some of them, this is terrible, some of them with their cap and gown on will very shortly be dead. Somebody in that room will overdose on, overdose on drugs and be dead before they turn 20. Somebody in that room will, will sign up to join the United States military. They'll go overseas and their life will be ended by some malicious person who plants an IED somewhere. They'll be dead. People capable of such wonderful things, such potential... And yet it's, it's ruined potential. And we need to talk about why that is. Why people, people who are capable of such wonderful things, can also be so terrible. Before we do that, though, uh, we're going to take a bit of a tangent this morning. We're going to take a bit of a tangent uh, because I want to talk about a specific aspect of being made in God's image that we need to give attention to because our world is giving a lot of attention to it. And I'm prompted to do it today based on what Moses wrote in Genesis 1.27 where he says, God created them male and female. Uh, the debate about, uh, our world is dominated by debates about human nature, what it means to be a human. The debates about homosexuality and about abortion, about uh, euthanasia, about capital punishment, debates about race, all of them are in, rooted in some way in being a human being and what it means to be a human being. The issue that is at most in our headlines, well, one of the top couple of issues, is the transgender moment. What does it mean to be male and female? At the root of the, the transgender movement is the belief that your biological sex, the, the phrase that's sometimes preferred is your sex assigned at birth, um, as if the doctor assigned it to you when you emerge. But your biological sex, the idea of the transgender movement is that your biological sex and your gender identity or your gender expression are not inextricably linked. 
So your biological sex as a male or female is not determinative of whether or not you identify as a man or a woman. And if there is a conflict, your biological sex needs to be, as much as humanly possible, altered so that it matches the person that you feel you are. So back in the 80s, when they were first uh, experimenting more with these, this surgery, uh, we talked in school about, not in school a lot, but about sex change operations. Nowadays, the preferred term for that is uh, gender confirmation surgery. Because you're going to, as much as you can, you want your body to be surgically altered so that it matches your identity. It's part of the transgender movement. It was really on the edge of our cultural attention until Bruce Jenner revealed himself on the cover of Vanity Fair as Caitlyn. And currently, the conversation that you read about most is not about uh, adults and transgender issues of adults, but children and how, what are the best practices for a parent or for a doctor in dealing with a child who doesn't feel, doesn't identify it by gender with the body that they have. So a little boy who feels like he should be a little girl. What, what do you do about that? That's the biggest issue right now. Last year in Ohio, uh, there was a group of parents who lost custody of their teenage child because they opposed the child's trans, um, transformation, transition with hormonal therapy treatment. So because they would not allow their daughter to transition to a boy when she was a teenager, they lost custody of her. Now, I want to turn to the text. Let's talk about the text, and I want to show you, I want you to see how much God's design for men and women, for male and female, is woven into creation itself. This is part of image-bearing. God made male and female, and together they are image-bearers, and it matters that God made male and female. I want to make a number of observations. Most of them come from a, a, I listened to a series of lectures uh, earlier this spring by a British Bible scholar named Alistair Roberts. And uh, I want to share some of the things I learned from him. Did you notice, first of all, how in Genesis 1, God seems to put sets of two into creation? He makes day and night. He makes land and sea. He makes waters above the firmament and waters below the firmament. Sun and moon, God makes male and female. He's woven these pairs into creation. And, and male and female here appear not just as opposites, but as interdependent charged, an interdependent charged pair, like magnets. There's electricity in their relationship with one another. Do you know why we sing love songs to one another? Uh, why, why there's so many poems and songs that celebrate the love between a man and a woman. I think it's because they appear at the end of Genesis 1, at the end of God's great creative song. He sang the world into existence, and the pinnacle of his creation is man and woman, and men and women have been singing to each other ever since. God assigns the man and woman together. Both of them, they're supposed to form and fill the earth. But is it interesting? It seems like in the providence of God, the woman has this primary role in filling the earth. She gives birth. She provides the earliest nurturing of their children. She knits the community together in a way that the man doesn't. The man, though, in contrast with his strength, has a primary role in forming the earth. So this forming and filling responsibility seem even in Genesis 1 and 2 to be laid out here. That men and women are not independent. 
uh, but they're, they're, there's this role distinction in this union. Alistair Roberts, he says he thinks that this role distinction has, uh, reminds him in the Bible of the role that God the Son and God the Spirit play. God the Son forms, he calls, he names, he separates, he unites, but the Spirit, God the Spirit is the one who gives birth and unites the community together. I mention all of these things because I, I want you to see that male and female are not loose or malleable or things that God thought of as an afterthought. Or, you know, on day six toward evening, he thought, you know, what would really be fun if I just changed the humans a little bit? Pow! You know, it's as if, as if this just occurred to him. He has embedded manhood and womanhood in the world that he has called into existence. There's lots of other places in the Bible where we could go and talk about this. Um, but I, I just want to briefly here, I want to share with you three ways to respond to the transgender movement. All right? Uh, it's a massive topic. I have three suggestions that I'm going to give in about four minutes. Who am I kidding? Seven minutes. And then we'll move on. All right? So some of you, not all of you, but some of you, number one here, will become increasingly familiar with the debate. You'll become increasingly familiar with the debate, and you may be involved in it. You'll maybe write papers or participate in debates or get interviewed in the news. You'll have a public role in this debate. And if that's the case, you need to get to work. You need to educate yourself. On Tuesday night, uh, Kathy and Claire and I went to a lecture at Lancaster Bible College by uh, Ryan Anderson. Ryan Anderson uh, released a book earlier this year called When Harry Became Sally. And if I was interested in learning more about this uh, this debate, I would get this book. It is the most comprehensive response to the transgender movement. It, is, it includes legal, medical, sociological, psychological information. It is a treasure trove of a book, highly recommended. Some of you need to get it, and some of you need to read it. It's called, if you missed that, it's called uh, When Harry Became Sally. And it's by Ryan Anderson. Uh, here's some of the things, if you read that book, here's some of the things that you'll learn, just a couple of them. Do you know that 85 to 90% of children who identify with the opposite gender will uh, outgrow or change their self-identification as they enter puberty? So if there's a six-year-old little boy who says, I feel like I'm a girl, that, that feeling will dissipate and change as he enters puberty. Unfortunately, right now, the primary protocol for treating that little boy is to give him puberty-blocking drugs so he never enters puberty. Uh, you'll also learn, based on a study that was ordered a review by the Obama administration a couple years ago, there are no long-term studies that show that transitioning actually improves quality of life. There's no evidence that it alleviates alienation or depression. Some of you need to study that material more thoroughly. You need to become familiar with it because you're going to speak to it in your classrooms or in a newsroom or in somewhere. So some of you need to get more familiar with the, the issues. Now, number two, what, what about the rest of us? Number two, we need to celebrate God's creation of male and female. Let's love biblical manhood and womanhood. Let's, let's celebrate it. Let's express it. Let's delight in it. Let's glory in it. Now, I'm not talking about stereotypes. I'm not talking about stereotypes at all. Um, it's actually the transgender movement that has to use stereotypes. So because they say that man and woman, maleness and femaleness, masculinity and femininity, are not embedded in creation, 
uh, they say it is only a culturally created thing. So if you want to identify as a woman or as a man, you have to go after the stereotypes because that's all they have. When Caitlyn Jenner, when Bruce Jenner announced that she was Caitlyn, she was on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine in the pose and makeup and costume of a pinup girl from the 40s and 50s. This massive stereotype because that's all that you have if you dismiss maleness and femaleness as it is embedded in creation. But we've got more than just stereotypes. We've got God's word that tells us um, about manhood and womanhood. So let's, let's embrace it and celebrate it and express it and give thanks to God for it because it's wonderful God made man and woman. Now third, I want to just recommend here, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. So the term gender dysphoria has been used to describe people who identify with the opposite gender, gender dysphoria. That's the phrase that is used what do people in your world with gender dysphoria need? They don't need your scorn. And they don't need your disdain. And they don't need your, your uh, pointing and laughter and eye-rolling. Uh, at the lecture on uh, Tuesday night, uh, Ryan Anderson would, was speaking. He'd occasionally quote a, a transgender expert or he'd talk about tran- transgender views of biology and gender. And there were moments when he was talking when the group, this group of people that were there dominated by conservative Christian people, they heard what some of these transgender arguments are and they, in the crowd, they harumphed. We collectively snorted and guffawed, sometimes chuckled. But brothers and sisters, there's a hurting people. They're hurting people. It is It is painful it is painful to have the experience of being born male and and just having these strong inclinations towards being female it is confusing it is painful it is distressing be careful what you post and what you say just think about this with me if i if if the person you know is experiencing that pain and they they're looking for help and they have seen you snorting and laughing and harumphing and have seen you post things, they're not going to come to you for help. They're going to go to somebody who will affirm them. Who I, I'm here to help you. I understand your feelings and it's perfectly normal and natural and you should come to me and I'll help you and I will love you. We should be the ones who love them. Don't... You may never end up in a press room. You may never be interviewed. You may never write a book about this or an article about this. But there's probably some kid in your neighborhood. Maybe somebody in your family. Perhaps, brothers and sisters, somebody in our church who has these feelings, this confusion and this pain, this disassociation. Make sure that what you, when you speak about them and uh, speak about this issue and when you talk to them, they know that you're someone who is safe to come to because you love them and you'll help them in the midst of, of what is a very traumatic and painful uh, uh, challenge. So love your neighbor. Now, this is going to end what has been a very long tangent about an important issue. We're going to get back on track here this morning. Why are people the worst? 
And so far I've said that, that though people are made in the image of God and it means they're, they're endued with great gifts and God graciously allows them to be expressed, that's not their all there is to humanity today. We're going to talk now about what's gone wrong here. All right, what has gone wrong? Why people are the worst? Reason number two, they hurt us because of their sinful brokenness. They hurt us because of their sinful brokenness. Here's the needling part of the sermon. What happened to this song that started in Genesis chapter 1 that was so beautiful, all this potential? It was ruined by the introduction of sin that happens in Genesis chapter 3. The image of God is not completely erased, but it was marred. I want to quickly talk about three things. We're going to first talk about what sin is. Secondly, we're going to talk about what sin does. And third, we're going to talk about how God responds. All right? So what sin is. We talk about sin a lot in our church because the Bible talks about sin a lot. It's less and less of a conversation in our culture. We're more inclined in our culture to talk about disease than we are about sin. Well, the Bible uses a host of words to talk about sin, over a dozen. I'm going to read them faster than you can write them down. You ready? Don't bother. Uh, corruption, inattention, error, guilt, godlessness, iniquity, lawlessness, transgression, perversion, missing the mark, rebellion, wickedness, Evil, disobedience, the Bible uses all of those words to describe uh, uh, this sin. And they each have their own part to add to the conversation. But theologians sometimes try to figure out what is the essence of sin. What is, if, if we talk about what sin is at its root, what is it? It's not hard to talk about sin in action. In action, as something I do with my hands or with my mouth, Sin means uh, breaking God's rules. So as an action, it's not hard to talk about. But what sin is a heart thing, too. It's a mind thing. What is it at its essence? And I think I learned this. This is not original to me, and it, you, it won't surprise you when I say it. That, that the best way to encapsulate the essence of sin is to talk about it as idolatry. What is sin? At its essence, sin is idolatry. Sin is replacing God with something or someone else, devaluing him, devaluing his word, exalting someone or something else to the place that God should be, esteeming him uh, less and esteeming something else or someone else more than him, and then acting accordingly. God's not that important, so I'll do what I want. Now, this, this really must trouble some people. I know when we talk about sin, why do we take sin so seriously? Why, why is God so bent out of shape about sin? Why is it such a big deal? I think people have the wrong image in their mind when they think about God and sin. I have a friend whose parents were um, diligent masters of their money. They were excellent stewards. They did everything they could to make their money stretch. And they had an ironclad rule in their house about sneakers. This was their ironclad rule. What most of you, when you get home and you will take off your shoes, you will use your feet and you will, you will prop off, pop off one of your shoes, right? And then you'll pop off the others. You know why you do that? Because you're lazy, right? Okay, so it's just the easiest way, easiest way to take your shoes off. You just pop them off at the heel. Well, this particular family had a very strict rule that in order to make their shoes last longer, they could not take them off that way. They had to lean down, loosen all of the laces, and then gently slide them from the foot. It made her sneakers last about eight days longer than the rest of us. But it had to be done. Because this is the way you take care of your sneakers. 
God has so many commands. He's got so many rules. And, and especially if you read some of like Leviticus, and you pick it up, there's these weird rules. And he's so bent out of shape if you break them. God's, sometimes God appears like your great aunt who still has the plastic on the furniture and doesn't want you to touch stuff. You have to be younger than, uh, older than I am to get that. If you're younger than I am, don't worry, just keep going, okay? So why is God so touchy? Why is he so exacting? Why is he so easily bent out of shape? That's the exact wrong way to think about God and his commands. Think for a minute with me here about the crime that you read. When you're reading the newspaper and you read about crime, the crime that, that really angers you the most, that really frustrates you. I, I think that in our culture at this point in time, the crime that really bothers us the most are stories about the abuse of children. Isn't that true? Uh, they break your heart. They make you angry. It's hard to think of a more heinous crime. Why, why do we feel that way? In part, we feel that way because of the victims, because of who they are. We use words like innocent and fragile and helpless. You, you, you read two newspaper stories, one about an adult beating on a child and one about two gang members beating each other. Which one bothers you more? Right? Which one do you have a greater re- re- response to? You want to lock one of them away uh, and throw the key away. Right? Put them away forever. Sin is heinous, not because God is fragile or because he's helpless, but because he is so worthy. He is worthy of our reverence. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our worship. He's infinitely worthy. And so turning from him to something else, replacing him with something else, is infinitely grotesque because of who he is. If you have a little view of God, you will have a little view of sin. It is a terrible crime to treat God as if he doesn't matter or if he doesn't exist or if he's unimportant. David Wells said this, It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his salience for human, saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgments no more in, awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth no less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. God is weightless. If your God is very small, sin will not be a very big deal to you. That's about a little bit about what sin is. Now, what does sin do? It's completely destructive. It's completely destructive. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We read Romans 3 just a moment ago. I want to read a couple of verses in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 29 in just a minute. Um, In his great book about, uh, his little text that he wrote about sin, Stanton Norman says this, a very basic sentence, sin never pleases God and it always hurts the sinner. It never pleases God and it always hurts the sinner. It touches every part of your life, touches your mind, your body, your emotions. You even pass it on to your children. 
It produces spiritual death. Remember, Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Why do you need to be born again? Because you're dead. Why are you dead? Because of sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 29. Look at this description. They have become, speaking about human beings, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. The internet. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding. They have no fidelity. They have no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. People are the worst. They're broken. Does this list sound familiar to you at all? Everything that's on this list? David Ward wrote, Sin affects us in many ways. It is characterized in Scripture as a crime, a debt, an oppressor. Not only are we victims of sin, but we are the victimizers, hurting others and ultimately God by our self-rule and selfish acts. Before a holy and righteous God, our sin makes us unclean. The debt of our sin is too great for us, making it impossible to earn our way back to a good standing with him. And our wounds run so deep that we are incapable of healing on our own or even rising to move towards God and ask for help. David Ward wrote that. I think David Ward is the one who wrote the song that we sang right before the sermon, Not In Me. I think David Ward wrote that. People are the worst. I'm the worst. This is a list. I could check them off. I could give you examples from my life of how I've lived all of these. And you could too. People are the worst. Sin is destructive. It makes us terrible, horrible, dirty people. Do you know what this means? It means that followers of Jesus Christ must develop great skills in confronting, forgiving, and restoring sinners. We're not surprised by sin. We should be grieved by it, but not surprised. Your past and your present, they're not surprised. They're not surprised. Especially if you are a Christian. See, in order to become a Christian, you have to admit that you have a past, that you have a sinful past. You have to admit that you have a need, that you have a sinful track record. We have no perfect people who are members of our church. If you claim to be perfect, you're not qualified to join. Right? We look at this list. We have a past and we have a present. When it comes to human sin, we are the least shockable people in the world, aren't we? And this book that tells us all about how terrible it is. Confronting, forgiving, restoring, it's how, how we move forward. It's how we move toward people who are overwhelmed by sin. And all three of them are hard. C.S. Lewis said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. Isn't that true? Now, finally, here, how does God respond to sin? How does God respond to sin? Uh, well, two answers. First one is wrath. Wrath. You're already in Romans 1. Look over at verse 18. 
Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And wrath is the result of that. If you love someone, but you never get angry about what hurts them, you don't really love them. God's wrath is a function of God's love. Love requires that you stand against what is hurting the people that you love. If you claim to love your children, but let them go play in traffic and don't do anything to stop cars or get them out of the road, you don't really love them. God's wrath is an expression of his love. He loves the world that he called into existence And he's going to fix it. And he's going to avenge the damage that we have wrought against one another. He's going to fix what we have broken. God responds to our sin with wrath. But he also responds with rescue. With rescue. Our doctrinal statement says, Every member of the human race is born estranged from God and in need of a savior, in need of rescue. See, there's a link between your understanding of sin and your understanding of what is required to fix sin. So think about this here. Your view of God affects your view of sin, and your view of sin affects how you value or what you think about what it takes to fix sin. If God is small and sin is small, then you need a very small Savior. But if God is big and sin is big, you need a Savior as big as God himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5:21 says, "God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, the Lord Jesus, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God." Christ became our sin bearer. He took the punishment, he bore the wrath that we deserved, so that through him, in him, we might be forgiven. Only Jesus is the big enough savior to be your savior. You can't be your own savior, your family can't be your savior, your church can't be your savior. Only Jesus can be your savior. That's how big the problem is. Martin Lloyd Jones used to use an illustration every now and then in his preaching. Uh, imagine a friend comes to you and says, I came by to visit you this afternoon at your house and you weren't there. Yeah, I was out buying groceries. Well, I'm really sorry about this, but I was in your house and I'm nosy and your mail was there and I, I saw your bills on the table and I paid one of your bills for you. I wrote a check and sent it off. I hope that's okay. Now, how would you respond to that? You'd be like, that's weird. Okay, I know that. All right, let's pass this for a minute. But if they're your close friends, you've already told them everything they could find in your house anyway, right? Okay. So um, now imagine your response to this, I think, will be determined by what bill it is, right? If it was your podiatrist bill from last month and your insurance paid everything but $8.56 and they paid the $8.56, you'd say, hey, thanks. You'd give them $8.56 worth of gratitude. But what if it was a bill from the IRS? That final notice from the IRS. You haven't paid your taxes in seven years. And you keep ignoring this bill. And you don't have the money to pay for it. And this is the letter that tells them that if you don't pay within the next 30 days, they're going to take your house and put you in prison. And your friend says, hey, I saw a bill on your table and I just paid it. I hope that's okay. What would you say then? Oh, friend, command me to do whatever you want. 
I bow to your generosity. Thank you so much. You, you, you would thank them with a prison-set-free gratitude, right? Seven years of back taxes with interest and penalties included. And, oh, thank you. Thank you. Some of you, I know that your view of sin is not very great. Sin is not a big deal to you because God's grace is not a big deal to you because if it were, you would be a happier person than you are. Tim Keller said that he was in a meeting once where the the men were considering potential candidates in the church for the office of an elder and and one man came up uh, to their mind and, and the lead pastor said, no, not him, not him. They said, why? He said, he, he is a joyless person. He knows the gospel, but apparently doesn't believe he has much sin that needs to be forgiven. He's not happy. He can't be an elder. Everybody around the room, that's very surprising. It's unexpected. It is crystal clear logic. And Tim Keller left the room thinking, man, I hope he thinks that I'm a happy person. Right? There's this connection. How big is your God? How big is sin? How big is salvation has Christ brought to us? And then how does it show up in your life? Oh, friend, you've paid my debt, my whole debt. So I plead with you to change your mind about sin, to turn from it, to turn from sin to him, to the Lord Jesus, to trust in him, to recognize that he is the Savior who paid the penalty for your sin so that you could be reconciled to God. That's how significant sin is. He has come to rescue us like only he could do. That's what we believe. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we ask you that you would, according to your grace, lift our heads uh, toward heaven with joy again this morning. Lord, as we look around at human beings, we have many reasons to give you thanks. You're a great creator. You made wonderful creatures who do amazing things. And your grace is poured out to us through them every day, and we're, we're thankful. And yet, Lord, we also, every one of us in this room, have been the victims of the heinous, thoughtful, thoughtless selfishness of others. And we have victimized other people, too. So we come before you grateful and we come before you chastened. Lord, I do ask that you would, well, as the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, he said we should pray to you that your name would be hallowed, that it be revered, that you would be great in, in, in our, we would see you in the greatness that you are in our minds and our hearts, that your magnificence and worth would be exalted. And then we'll see how terrible our sin is and how great our Savior is and our joy will overflow. Do you do that work in us? Make us people because we have a great fear of sin, have a great joy in Jesus. Do that to us, Lord. Remind us this week that the Lord Jesus has taken care of the great problem We pray, dear Father, that you would send your Son soon to rescue us from this terrible, broken world, 
that we might kneel before the great Lord Jesus and say, Ah, sin bearer, you are worthy of worship and praise and glory and honor. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying together, Amen.